All right, the message from God's Word will be from John chapter 5. John chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 31, John 5, 31. Remember in John 20, we're told that the purpose of the gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. So I want to just remind you, it's been, it's been a little while since I've talked about the full context of John's gospel. He's writing in A.D. 90. So remember that in A.D. 90, it's likely that all the other apostles are dead. John's the last one. He himself is in exile away from all the brothers, away from the church. He lives on the island of Patmos by himself. And in the previous 40 years of John's writing of this gospel, Satan, who's the father of lies, the deceiver, he's attacking the church with a horrible false doctrine called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, in short, denies the divinity of Christ. So by the time John wrote this gospel, the church had been rocked by this heresy for 40 years, denying the full divinity of Jesus. They would actually say, well, he is a special person, but he's not quite equal with God. God used him mightily, and he's the Messiah, but he's not God. Not equal with the Father. They would point to his life and say, well, look, he was, he was the first of all the created beings, but far from fully God, far from being very God of very God. The religious leaders universally rejected him as well. Um, and eventually killed him. So these Gnostics for 40 years had been, this heresy had kind of been looming over the church like a dark cloud. And John is moved by the Holy Spirit before he dies to state once and for all, for all of the church, that Jesus is God. He's one with the Father and always has been. His very first sentence, if you remember, of this gospel in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's just taking a broadside to Gnosticism with one hard swoop of his hand. So we get to chapter 5, and Jesus is being accused of making himself equal with God. Of course, this is a theme that John wants to address. He wants to show that Jesus was equal with God because he was God. Last week we saw that Jesus responded to accusations as if he's in a court of law. The word he used is that he answered them. And this word answered, of course, as we discussed, is kind of a legal term in the Greek. It's used in the context of, of judges and legal cases. So Jesus, in a sense, is he's presenting his case to these sinful men who hate him and want to kill him. And just courts and finding truth were important in the nation of Israel. So we see Jesus kind of using the established principles of witnesses and testimony and presenting of evidence against the charges placed against him as if he were in a court of law. And that's what we're seeing. This accusation that he's claiming to be equal with God, he doesn't deny it. He actually embraces it and begins to show that he, has, he does have equality with God. 
He first defends it, and we saw this last week by showing his, or two weeks ago, by showing his equality with the Father. This is verses 19 through 30. He showed that he and his Father are one, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. He gave evidence. He showed evidence. And now he's transitioning in this argument to witnesses. He's appealing to witnesses in defense of his divinity in verses 30 to 47. He, he doesn't need witnesses, but again, he's humbling himself. He's, he's, he's condescending to their system of, of judicial review to show that he does have witnesses. It's for the sake of the Jews that he does this, not for his own sake. So today we're going to focus on the, the human witness that he brings, although he needs no witnesses and he says this. His human witness is John the Baptist. This is verses 31 through 35. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Amen. Please be seated. Let us turn to the Lord once again in prayer. Lord, we know that your testimony is true. You need no man to witness to your truth, to the truth of your own existence. We are just finite creatures, but you are the almighty, infinite creator. And yet such is your love and your condescension that you show us with man's evidence that all that you say is true. Lord, open our eyes and convict our hearts. And may we also believe like John the Baptist. All that we say and all that we hear and all that we do, may it all reflect the truth of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title is Burning and Shining for Jesus. This is what Jesus said of John the Baptist, that he was a burning and shining light. This just struck me. As we talked about earlier, you know, John the Baptist is, I think, the most overlooked of all of the prophets. And in a sense, that's exactly what the greatest of all the prophets would want. He would want Jesus to be magnified in his own life to be minimized. John the Baptist even said, he must increase and I must decrease. And yet we as a church should never forget John the Baptist in his faith because he's a great example for us. First, let's, first, before we look at John's life, let's look at verses 31 and 32. These statements in verses 31 and 32 need to be seen in light of Jesus' previous argument that He and the Father are one. In other words, it's impossible for the Son to act apart from the Father. It's not possible. They are one. They have the same purpose, they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So with that context, listen to verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's not saying that he's not someone to be listened to, he, that his testimony isn't true. He's saying that it's impossible to, to, for him to testify apart from the Father about himself. Because he and the Father are one. 
And he's also simply stating that in, in a court of law, in their own system of law, that his testimony would not stand alone. But that's not the main point. The main point is, my testimony isn't alone. I have the testimony of the Father, the Spirit, and many people. And he'll talk about more testimony later. But what humility I see to condescend to the rules of this court. This court that he himself had created the system of. He condescends to it to show that the truth should be seen and, and known by all. But it is also ironic that truth incarnate, Jesus, who is truth, would be seen to need witnesses. But his testimony does stand on its own, regardless of what they might think. And yet he still gives witnesses. He still shows them that he, he has much testimony to be offered. So he's submitting to these rebels and showing them that he has much evidence, much witness, much testimony. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. So remember, he's already shown that he and the Father are one. There's another who bears witness about me, I believe talking about the Father, maybe the Holy Spirit. Either way, he's talking about the Godhead. There's another who bears witness about me, and his testimony is true. His Father bears witness about him. His Father's testimony is true. There's really no higher witness of all than the Father. And notice he's, he's it seems careful that he makes certain that there's not a witness in the Father that's completely distinct from himself. In other words, he doesn't say, there is another person who bears witness about me, and I know his witness is true. He's not separating himself from the Father in that way. But he says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. I don't think that's unimportant. He's, he's maintaining this unity with the Father as he speaks to the Father's witness, whom he's been eternally one with since before creation, before the end of time. This is the infinite Godhead affirming his personal convictions, Jesus' own personal convictions of oneness with the Father. He addresses this idea of the Trinity again in John chapter 8, verse 13. The Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge." but I and the Father who sent me. Whenever they ask for a witness, the first place he goes is to his Father. So the other who bears witness about him, I believe must be his Father. But he also says, and I know the testimony he bears about me is true. So I don't think this is just hyperbole. I think he's talking about real specific testimony that could be verified. That's what testimony is. Someone says, I saw that. I heard that. And Jesus is saying his testimony about me is true. Well, had God ever said anything in public about Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. He already has once and he will two more times. He publicly from heaven talks about his son. 
At his baptism, he said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He said it aloud from heaven for everyone to hear. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he says in the hearing of three of the apostles, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And during the week of his death in John 12, he says, Jesus says, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So there's plenty of verifiable testimony, literal testimony from the Father. But really, it doesn't matter what testimony is given. And from the highest power in all the universe, these men were blind to the truth and they would not receive Jesus. They would not bend the knee. But the testimony of the Father really is the only testimony that ultimately matters. And although this is true, Jesus makes a legal case before these men and He calls another to witness. And that's John the Baptist in verse 33. He says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. You remember at this time, don't forget, John the Baptist was the most popular man in all of Judea. More popular than Jesus at this time was John the Baptist. He was the superstar. He was the Billy Graham. He was going around and just cracking the whip and preaching the truth. And the people loved him. The leaders of the country, the the, the elites, if you will, despised him. But John the Baptist was the most popular man in all of Israel. So Jesus and Jesus later says he was the greatest man who ever lived. So Jesus is almost like saying, I'm calling my first witness. It's this guy, the greatest man who's ever lived, the most popular man in the land. And he bore witness about the truth. As a prophet, he called the people to repentance, to escape the wrath that was to come. And at the height of his popularity, remember in chapter 1, he was investigated by the Pharisees. And Jesus reminds the Jews that they had asked John the Baptist for his testimony. And John the Baptist bore witness to the truth. What were the words of John the Baptist? This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then later he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 34 he says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So Jesus is telling these Pharisees, look, John the Baptist, you already sent to him and asked him for a witness. And he gave a witness. But I don't need this testimony. Jesus says, I don't need it. This is for you that you might be saved. That's verse 34. Not that the testimony I receive is from man. Jesus doesn't need this testimony at all. He said these things that you might be saved. And what great mercy that He would show these these sinful, wicked accusers who want to kill Him 
the testimony of the most great man, the greatest man who'd ever lived. This adds nothing to the mind or confidence or identity or mission of Jesus at all. But the fact remains that the Jews held John to be a great prophet and John bore witness to the truth. John gave a verifiable testimony to the truth and he took it with him till his death. He believed Christ to his death. Jesus said, Matthew eleven eleven. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus has for his defense, in a sense, the greatest being, the greatest person who has ever lived, God the Father, his first witness, and his second witness, the greatest man who's ever lived, John the Baptist. And why was this testimony presented to them? He said, I don't need it, but it's that you might be saved. And then he begins to talk about John the Baptist. And it's the third point. We'll spend most of the time talking about this. John, he was a good witness. Why? Because he was a burning and shining lamp. He was a burning and shining lamp. He bore witness to Jesus. And Jesus now bears witness in a way to John in the most wonderful language. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. These are also the words of Jesus. And this is exactly what John the Baptist did. So what was it about John the Baptist that Jesus commends? We should want to know that as God's people because we want to be like that. It's like Paul who said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We can look to Paul. We can look at John the Baptist. You should be able to look at mentors in your life and you imitate them as they imitate Christ. Well, what was it about John the Baptist? Was it just his public witness or his words? What was it? Well, Jesus gives us two things. I believe there's much more, but these are the two things that Christ gives us. He was burning and he was shining. He was burning from the inside and he was shining outwardly. He was burning inwardly by the Holy Spirit's love for God and he was shining outwardly in good works toward others. So let's talk about the burning. By the burning, I believe we're, we're looking at the fire that's in us. It's the Holy Spirit that burns within you. It's the Holy Spirit that's invaded your soul and changed your heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit that you have any flame at all. If you're burning, you've been adopted by God. You've come to faith in Jesus Christ. You've been accepted as righteous in His sight. By faith you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation. Why? Because you're burning inside with the Holy Spirit. So we need to all ask ourselves, are we burning? Is there a flame? Not all burning has the same amount of heat. But you have to have some heat. There has to be some, some fire. The Holy Spirit, if He lives in you, is going to produce some love for God. Jesus Himself is the light of the world. And we who follow Him will have that light within us. Do you remember in the very beginning of time, God said, let there be light. And theologians since then have said that the greatest miracle of all time wasn't the creation of the universe. Rather, it was when he said, let there be light in the soul of man. 
Is this light within you? Is this pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness? Is that your light that leads you in your life? It was the light that led David as it led John the Baptist. David said in Psalm 18, It is you who light my lamp, O Lord. My God lightens my darkness. God certainly is the fire burning in the soul of David. Is the Lord your light and salvation that you not fear? This light within you is the Holy Spirit. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the Christian life in a nutshell. God shines on your heart and you see Jesus for the first time. So I want to ask you, are you burning in your soul? Is the flame burning hot? Is the fire calling you to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow Jesus? Do you wake with a love for God and a desire to serve Him all day long? Do you long to commune with God in prayer every day? Do you thirst for the Word of God each morning? Does the love of Christ control you? Or rather, are you fooling yourself? Are you controlled by your own desires for comfort and pleasure and entertainment and health and peace? Now, if the flame within you is smoldering, praise God you have a flame. But I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Do not be lukewarm lest you be spewed out of the mouth of God. Burn hot for God. Fan into the flame. Fan into flame this smoldering wick that might be your own faith in Christ. Well, how? How will you burn for Jesus like John the Baptist? How will you, how will you burn hot in your soul? Well, it won't be because of your own efforts. It'll be because you look to Jesus. Look to the glory of Christ. Look to Jesus. Ask God to help your unbelief. Ask God to help you burn for Him. We know in our daily lives, if we don't fix our eyes on Jesus, they're going to drift. So the Word and the prayer and the fellowship of the saints and and the sacraments are how God basically takes His people and He says, remember, remember me. And the Word in our prayers, the Word of God in our prayers should be something we do every day and throughout the day. It's been noted that in a marriage where one of the parties commits adultery, usually that person is not at home very much. They spend a lot of time away from home. So the wandering soul spends very little time with God. So if you feel like your, your, your wick is smoldering in your soul, it's probably because you're not spending any time with your Lord. You've lost sight of the glory of Christ. You've forgotten His great love and sacrifice. So seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Renew your pursuit of Him as He's offered in the Gospel. This doesn't mean you need to do something crazy radical, go get baptized in the Jordan River, burn candles or go to revivals. It just means you need to live the normal Christian life. Ask God to help you dedicate yourself to Him and pursue Him as He's seen in the Word of God 
pursue him in, in prayer. And this normal Christian life is actually the most radical thing you could ever do. And it's probably the most difficult thing that you will ever do. But it should be the default for the Christian. It certainly seems to have been the default for John the Baptist. He was burning in his soul with a love for God. So you want to burn, then fan the flame. Again, I've said this means spend time in the Word. To spend times first, it means first spending time in the Word. If you want to fan the flame, if you want to remember what God has done for you, you need to be in the Word every day. It's been noted before. We, we regulate our entire day, don't we? To get the right food, the best food, the healthiest food. You'll plan where you're going to go eat. You'll plan what you're going to have for me. You'll go to the shopping. You'll, go, you'll do all of these things because you're so concerned about putting food in your belly. Besides all the snacks and besides all the water you need. And yet you'll fast the only real eternal food. You'll fast for days and days and days. The Word of God. It's, it rests so lightly upon you. It means so little to you. You'll prioritize the hamburger that you're going to eat tomorrow for lunch. But the hour in the Word, the two, three hours spent communing with the Word of God, you'll just hope it happens. You'll just kind of stumble along and maybe hope that you make time for it. True Christians can't live like this for very long. So I'll tell you, if it's been months or weeks since you've actually spent time in the Word of God, dedicated time in the Word, you need to look at something different. Is there even a light burning in your soul? Because the true man of God, the Holy Spirit, will not allow you to starve. You're going to crave the bread of life. Turn to the Word of God. If you want this fire to burn hot, turn to God and pray. Prayer is the second, the second thing I want to focus on. Is John the Baptist, he burned hot and is reflecting his time of prayer. He spent years alone with God in the wilderness. What was he doing? I'm convinced, like Christ, he was praying and he was devouring the Word of God. The greatest man who's ever lived, the greatest prophet who's ever lived, certainly was a man of prayer. And besides John the Baptist, if Jesus, the Son of God, who had more responsibility than you or I can ever have, he had a more pressing schedule than any of us will ever have. He had no place to lay his head. He had the responsibility, literally, of the entire world resting upon his shoulders. And he made time for prayer. And he lived in perfect fellowship with the Father. What does that tell us about our need for prayer? If Christ rose very early in the morning while it was still dark and departed and went to a desolate place to pray, if in the days of His flesh Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, how much more should we be praying? If Jesus prayed on earth, we have no excuse. Not only do we not have an excuse, we should long to be praying. Our prayers reach the very throne of God. And the Father hears our prayers and delights in them and delights to answer them. The man who burns bright and burns hot 
in his soul is the man who is a man of private prayer. He regularly prioritizes his private prayer. He, he prays morning, noon, and night. Just as he feeds his own belly, he's feeding his own soul. He's communing with God. And don't tell me, well, I just pray all day. That's what I do. I just pray throughout the day. No, you don't. You don't have a regular set time of prayer. Then you're not praying. You need to pray. You need alone time with God. Jesus not only exampled this for us, He commands us and He shows us how to pray. But in the New Testament, we see not only... Jesus' example in private prayer and the apostles' example in private prayer and all the saints' examples in private prayer, we see that their prayers really are constant and that they're also corporate. They're praying together. I suspect some of you haven't actually prayed privately to God for more than a minute or two in years. No wonder the flame is smoldering. No amount of knowledge, no amount of of doctrine can make up for a dead prayer life. You must pray if you're to commune with God. If you're not burning hot, you're not communing with the Almighty God. He's drawing you back to prayer. And especially on the Lord's Day. This is a day set apart for communion with the Holy God. If you want to start this time of prayer that we're talking about, make this day the day that you dedicate some, some time to the Lord. Go into a, a quiet room and pray. Well, I don't know how to pray. Okay, well, you're going to get better the more you do it. And God will help you. And He loves it when His people pray. But when you pray on the Lord's Day, you're going to find that your prayers throughout the whole rest of the week your regular time of prayer throughout the rest of the week is much more frequent. It's much more blessed. We work out of this day into the week. Not just for all of our, our acts of devotion, our pursuing of God, but for all of the good works toward men. So today I would ask you, turn off your TVs, put away your games and your smartphones. Test me in this. And see if devoting this whole day to worship and prayer as God has commanded doesn't result in the sweetest blessing of your week. Test me. See if God doesn't reward you throughout the week for diligently seeking Him on this day for 24 hours. Seeking to obey His commands about the Lord's day and love for God. We've talked about the Word. We've talked about prayer. I want to also mention that if, if you have been hardened by sin, if the light within you is, is hardly smoldering, if you've not been reading or praying or joining the, the church and fellowship, you haven't really had the sacraments because of that, and, and you're determining today to begin again. You're going to be in a battle and it will be difficult, but... Christ Himself says that He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. If there's some smoke, that means there's a hint of flame. And you should fix your eyes on Jesus and pursue Him. And He will shower you with His grace. And you will soon be burning hot again by the power of Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist was. He won't leave you alone in this covenant of grace. And this is the glorious thing of all of His graces. 
Whatever He requires of us, He provides for us. None of it is us. It's all Him. So of John the Baptist, he says, not only does he burn inwardly, but he shines outwardly. This was the second thing that made him a good witness for Jesus. He had the Holy Spirit burning inside and this produced a shining out to others. The whole world sees his repentance, his turning from God or turning to God with an endeavor after a new obedience. The whole world sees his sanctification. Him being renewed in the whole man, in the whole man after the image of God, and enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. These are works of grace. God enables you to repent, and He sanctifies you. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, as we're made into God's image. But everyone sees it. The whole world is able to see this change in your life, and it's never too late for a change. You could be ninety years old, and the God, the God of the universe, could change your soul. And you could be shining brightly for the King of Kings. This is how John the Baptist shined for Christ. Everyone whom he knew or met knew that he was the King's man. Everyone knew it. And Jesus taught that we are the lights of the world and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The shining that John the Baptist had is the same shining we should have, and it's a shining that everyone sees. Paul talks about another way that we shine. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing, without grumbling or disputing that you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you also shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So you see, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's our own just living godly lives, not grumbling or complaining about the world that He's given us or the place that He's placed us. And this shines out to the world. It's so countercultural because we love God and we love our fellow man. This is how we shine brightly. We live lives that are devoted to God, like John the Baptist. They cannot see the fire that burns within you, but they can feel the warmth of the light. They can feel the warmth of the heat as they're close to you. And you know, Jesus talked extensively of, of this in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who shine brightly are those who don't hide the truth from their family, from their friends. They proclaim it from the rooftops. These are people who would forsake everything because their lives have been changed by God. So we look to Jesus to burn inwardly. We take, take advantage of all the means of grace, the Word, sacraments, prayer, and fellowship of the saints. But then that also results in a shining as we live like Christians. And right after Jesus said this on the Sermon on the Mount about shining as lights, what does He talk about? He talks about all the commandments, doesn't He? Interesting. The first and the biggest way, I'm going to give you three ways I think you shine outwardly. The first and the biggest way you shine outwardly is you just love God and obey His commandments. This is the... the, the 
the outline of the Sermon on the Mount. Shine brightly. Oh, and I'm going to tell you how. Obey my commandments. You honor God in all things in your life. You don't tolerate idols in your life. You honor God in His work and His revelation, His gospel, His word, His church, His ministers, His time. You honor the Lord's day. You honor authority and family and religious and civil authorities. You preserve your own life and the life of your neighbor to the best of your ability. You run from anger and run toward thanksgiving. You preserve your marriage, your relationship. You're faithful to your husband and wife. You're faithful to all the relationships God's given you. You don't tolerate any sin or lust. You preserve the property of others. You preserve your own property. You're faithful to save and tithe and give. You preserve the good name of your neighbor and your own good name by living with integrity, not lying or flattering or gossiping. And you preserve your own heart. You're content with what God has given you. That's the Ten Commandments, brothers and sisters. And it's it's so easy to understand it, but to see that the, the following of God in these ways is a shining for God in a dark world is hard for us to grasp. And yet it's true. The second way I think you shine for Jesus is to speak His words. This is what John the Baptist did. He spoke the truth about Jesus. You make disciples of your family and of your friends. You're not ashamed of the Gospel. And you remember that everyone whom you're talking to every day of your life, that's who Jesus wants you to talk about or talk to to about Jesus, about Himself. The person in front of you is an eternal being who's going to live forever in heaven or hell. And that moment is not a coincidence, so speak to them about Jesus. This is another way we shine. Every part of our life is worship. Every conversation is eternal. So pray that God helps you and gives you words. The third way I believe you shine, if you're burning brightly in your heart for Christ, is that you do the deeds that Christ did. You seek out the marginalized and the forgotten, the sojourners, the orphans, the widows. You have the attitude of a slave of God who seeks to do His Father's work. You visit those who are sick and in prison. You're thinking of others more than yourself. You're loving the brothers with an unending love. You'd rather sacrifice your own life for the life of others than lift yourself up above anyone. We don't see ourselves being asked really to often give up our own lives as as Jesus did on the cross. But He does tell us to take up our cross daily and follow Him. So it's, it's the understanding of a thousand crosses every day where you put Christ and others above yourself. This is the way that John the Baptist shone brightly. And so should you today. So I would tell you all that I love you all deeply. And that's why I'm telling you the truth. Recommit yourself to live like John the Baptist. All in for Jesus. Burn brightly in your soul. And if you're not, ask Him to burn brightly in your soul. Pursue Jesus as He's shown Himself to us in the Word and pursue Him in prayer. Be regular in your fellowship with the saints. And then strive to shine brightly just to live a Christian life before the world. You're willing to rejoice for a while in His light, we are are told. May everyone be willing to rejoice for a little while in the light of Jesus that shines out toward others. Let us pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your mercy and for Your Word. We thank You that You've given us in this what was once a a cold 
and dying heart, you've given us light. Just as what was earlier this morning, a, a cold sanctuary, Lord, you've made it warm. Lord, we pray that you do the same in our hearts. That the flame of your spirit would burn hot within us and that the heat would be felt by those around. Like John the Baptist, that we would burn and shine for Jesus Christ. You're our only hope. Please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together and sing our closing hymn number 88.